Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Eli Dorado. He's an economist and regulatory hacker living in Washington, D.C., and a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. Welcome to the show, Eli. Thanks for having me, Mark. What is total factor productivity and why does it matter? Total factor productivity is all the growth that you get that doesn't result from just applying more inputs. So you could always grow your GDP by having more labor and more capital applied, or everybody works longer hours, or everybody saves more, and so on. And that's output that there's some cost to, right? You have to like work more hours, right? And that's that's a cost. Total factor productivity is like the change in output that you get for free that, you know, just hopefully uh, increases year over year with either, you know, new technology or better institutions. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not free, is it? It's not easy. Let's put it that way. It's not easy to get, but it's it's like if you improve your TFP, like you get more output forever in principle. Yeah. Okay. So that's what it is. Why does it matter? If GDP matters, right? Like, and I think that that's the starting point is like, does, does GDP matter? Right. And I think like GDP is pretty well correlated with like every, like all kinds of values that we care about, right. In terms of material welfare, in terms of living standards, in terms of how much leisure time we can have or you know lots of other values that we care about that are even including non-economic values like we have more time and resources for them when gdp is higher right and then td tfp is like the best way to get gdp because it doesn't take up additional labor hours or other resources to get them to get higher gdp so tfp is like sort of the purest form of economic growth is is just getting more output with the same resources year after year and why don't, right, because you've been kind of beating this drum for a while. Why do you think other people are not as focused on TFP as you are? Uh, that's a great question. I think, I, I mean, I don't know. I've been thinking about economic growth since I was like nine years old. That's just un- unusual, right, for people to be that obsessed with it. You know, it's like the statistics come out like, you know, once a year or once a quarter or something like that. So it's not like that relevant in the news. It's It's very highly, highly abstract it's not a source of policy debate, right? It moves very slowly relative to the things, the levers that government has. Yeah. I mean, I, I get all of that, but you'd still think there's lots of like, I don't know, weird esoteric debates that occupy certain niches of the internet where you might have a few dozen people arguing about it or a few dozen researchers. And you're like, right, there's kind of the progress studies as a whole. And even within that, you're, you're already the only one who's like beating the TFP drum a little bit more heavily. Yeah, yeah. So within progress studies, right, there's there's people who focus on science productivity, right? And, and like, is science getting better? There's people who think about historical, what led to progress in the past in terms of like historical circumstances and so on. And so my view is that it's underrated to focus on specifically on the last sort of step in the innovation process, the one that actually gets you products at scale that can affect productivity and look at that in a forward-looking direction rather than just a historical, through a historical lens. Yeah, I don't know why more sort of progress-oriented folks aren't, aren't taking that approach, but I'm hoping to sway some of them. Uh, you know, I think it's good that we have these other approaches as well, right? So I'm not trying to get everyone has to be on my train, but I would like to get a little bit more momentum behind it. What single biggest, I don't know, invention or institution in the past led to the greatest TFP increase? So Robert Gordon, right? And I think he's wrong about a lot of things, but he is probably right about the great inventions in terms of what happened in the last century, right? And so he, he kind of says, argues that there's five great inventions, things like internal combustion engine, the idea of like pharmaceuticals and chemicals, the idea of like sanitation and indoor plumbing and, and things like that. And a couple others that, that escape me right now. Electricity is one of them. And then there's one one other that I forget. So I think like Gordon's like historical work is like pretty good as far as it goes. I think it's like the interpretation that, that maybe is messed up. I would say it's it's probably like he's probably nailed it that that was like a huge deal from, you know, 1920 to 1970. Those inventions that were all like invented in the late 1800s, 
sort of like took a few decades to get started in terms of commercialization and, and productization to get to and then and then sort of scaled up over that 1920 to 1970 period and then that was a period that we had two percent tfp growth per year that was pretty awesome and we should try to do that again and like since then like we've had like i think he would say and i would agree with it as far as it goes that we've had like the one great invention the internet or like it and so there hasn't been something comparable like you could make like maybe say like in the last 10 years like fracking was pretty good but i think it might be helpful for some of our listeners to just go through like reconstruct that argument broadly you're kind of doing it now i think just like responding like somewhat circumstantially the question but what is kind of the progress studies argument broadly with kind of tfp put at the forefront in terms of how that's changed since the mid to late 19th century and today for most of human history like tfp didn't budge right so if you go back like hundreds of thousands of years it didn't budge started growing in the industrial revolution maybe a little bit before and then sort of these inventions in the late 1800s like took a few decades then like middle of the 1900s you know two percent per year and then since 1970 in 1970 it fell by over half so less than one percent a year there was a little resurgence in the you know sort of mid 1990s to it lasted about 10 years in which it was growing at two percent again and then it sort of like since 2005 it basically flatlined like i mean it's like 0.3 percent a year since 2005 Especially if you use utilization adjusted TFP, which is, you know, take account of the of the business cycle, which is important. So if you look at at it in that time span, like I think like, you know, it's concerning, you know, and, and like Tyler Cowen has raised the point, like since the 1970s, that's like the great stagnation, the period since 1973, he would say. But I think actually like the period since 2005 is actually a lot more concerning in the sense of like the, the amount that it dropped, that TFP growth dropped was you know, like pretty substantial, right? We went, we went down to like 0.3% a year since then. And that is really low. I mean, that's like pre 20th century levels of TFP growth. That's kind of scary. You know, we need to put it at the center and figure out like how, how to do it. And I think, I think part of that is fundamental science, but like the bigger share is actually getting products to market so that they can be at scale and so that they can affect actually productivity at, you know like i'm guilty of this as much as anybody but there's this thing that's called science porn right where you like read some exciting new journal study and like you tweet about it all excitedly and i do that all the time but like every every new discovery in a journal right doesn't affect tfp until it becomes a product that can be disseminated at scale and actually af- affect you know how people are are doing stuff that's the step of the process that I'm most concerned about is like barriers to taking these ideas, right? And even Gordon, right, is is a little guilty of this because he talks about great inventions. Well, it's not the inventions that that did the stuff; it's the it's the dissemination of the inventions. That's what's important. How reliable are TFP statistics? How they calculated? You say like like there's this like substantial drop in 2005, and my impression of like like some economic statistics is like it's like all right, there's like something there, and TFP. To me, at least, there's no like easy natural intuition where it's like unemployment rate. You call up 5,000 people and ask, are you employed or not? Right. And obviously, there's challenges with respondents with cell phones, blah, blah, blah. But there's some kind of baseline understanding going on with TFP. It's like, all right, I presume there's like, I don't know, four statistics that are inputs to this. But like that noise ends up getting pretty substantial at some point. Sure. It's totally possible. So it's not so in, in terms of how it's actually inferred, it's basically a regression residual, right? So it's so you take uh you know, log GDP and regress it on log labor hours and and log capital. And some fancier models use a, a measure of human capital as well. And then everything that's not explained by sort of the effect on output that's not explained by the real inputs, right? Capital and labor is attributed to this sort of more abstract level of technology and institutions, TFP, right? And so on one hand, like that's kind of a weird way to do economic statistics you're not measuring it directly you're inferring it based on everything else on the other hand like we do have pretty good labor statistics and it's not like there's lots of capital that is missing in terms of our statistics and i would say one other thing is that you know i would definitely be sympathetic to the idea that you could miss on a tfp estimate for like one year or one quarter or something like that but for the trends to be so striking and so consistent like that to me, it doesn't seem like that's a measurement error. 
you mentioned previously, right, they're technically like the, the commercialization and distribution of these inventions is good. How do you think about that? Typically, when I think about like, I don't know, it might be called broadly like industrial cycles, right? You basically have like 60 to 80 year like cycles where from kind of first deployment of a technology to what might be described as like an 80% utilization rate. Is that the right framework for thinking about it? And when does that like kind of deployment actually start showing up in right TFP statistics? Because if we think about the internet, right, that started kind of in the early 90s. We're 30 years into the cycle and it's not only not showing up, it's actually like we're seeing a, a drop and maybe that like it is showing up. It's just that the drop in other areas is bigger, but that, that, that strikes me as, I don't know, somewhat like, I don't know, out of whack with what my intuition would be. So in terms of like actual dissemination of products and stuff, like things are getting faster over time. Like it took a long time to like electrify the company, uh, the, the, the country, and it's taking less time for like everyone to adopt start smartphones. So in terms of like dissemination of products, it's getting faster. So you would think like the rate at which innovations are starting to affect TFP should be going faster. But it doesn't seem to be the case or it doesn't seem to, you know, a lot, a lot of this IT stuff like doesn't seem to be massively increasing TFP at an appreciable rate or, or a rate that we can we can say is like, oh, there's a big bump from it. All right. Well, let's get on to other non-TFP related questions. What's neo-medievalism? So neo-medievalism is this idea sort of popular in the late 1990s or not popular, but, uh, you know. Dis, you know, first discussed in the, in the late 1990s that sort of like power is getting less monopolized or power is not being tiered as much the way it used to be so if you think about like sort of in the medieval era right people had loyalty to like their like local duke they had loyalty to like catholic church they had loyalty to their professional guild and these all, all these institutions like had jurisdiction or real political influence over people's lives, but they weren't territorial in the same way that, you know, they they sort of, or if they were, the territories were overlapping and the way that power operated was not just like monopolized by like a king who, you know, had dukes beneath him with exclusive territories and they had like counts beneath them with exclusive territories or something like that. It was just much more squishy and messy in sort of the, you know, post-Westphalian era, we've gotten to like the modern world where states exist and they have territorial sovereignty. Basically, like all our allegiances are like tear up to one institution. And so the idea of neo-medievalism is that we're going back to that messier era where our political allegiances and actual exercise of power could potentially be more messy, not tearing up to just a single entity and more interesting, ultimately, right? I expect it will be interesting to watch if this trend indeed does continue to play out. So what do you, I guess, include in that, I guess, trend of things like sanctuary cities, potentially Chaz, charter cities? Like, do all of these fall into these buckets? It could fall into that bucket. Like, the sanctuary city is still, like, fully encompassed by some political entity, right, and subordinate to it. They're just sort of, like, resisting a little bit. I think it could be that, or it could be also, like, things like online communities that vie for our allegiances a little more so it could be that sort of like the socialists are all like they're more loyal to like global socialism than they are to the government that they happen to live under or it could be that you know that other people have online communities that they feel very strong affinity to and that that they're more loyal to in some ways at least than sort of the, the formal political institution that governs them so i think it is interesting for charter cities because it means you're not trying you you might not be trying to replace the state at, at the height of its like high modernist power right where it has to be everything for everybody and it can just be focused on providing the sort of like the necessities and and allow people to have their sort of like other political communities that can influence their allegiances as well how do you think that affects the development and distribution of technology i mean sometimes i think people like kind of particularly libertarians i think underrate the modern state in the sense that Having all of these different like local municipalities oftentimes can be very bad, right? In Germany, you would pay taxes like every mile down the Rhine because there'd be a different institution and that ends up severely restricting trade. And then two is just having a large internal market is good, right? That allows you to do very capital intensive investments with long time horizons, knowing that there is the possibility to recoup those investments at some point in the future, when if you have much smaller markets, that can be much more difficult. It's a great question. I don't know that there's a, like a clear answer. I wouldn't say that the nation state is going away necessarily, right? Like, it, it, so, so there could still be like a United States with a multi-trillion dollar budget. I just think that there are going to be subnational, supranational, like transnational institutions 
also, right, that sort of vie for political power or that, that actually exercise political power to some extent. And I think it's also the case that technology is primarily it's technology that drives the political change. So there may be a feedback loop where this change in the structure of power also affects the kinds of technologies that we get. But I think a lot about the dialectic between technology and geography, right? Because so, so much of political institutions comes out of, of geography, of big territories, of transportation networks, of, you know, like the availability of ports. That's the kind of stuff that I think gradually technology could conquer and make location irrelevant. So I have like two thinkers like that live rent-free in my head. One is like Peter Zion, who's like, geography is everything. It like d- d- describes all of political power. And then I have Balaji, who's like, geography doesn't matter anymore. We're transcending it almost completely. And I think Peter's probably like more close to right in the, in the short term, but like Balaji could be right in the long term. And so that sort of interchange between geography and technology and the way that they affect power is, I think, an interesting thing to watch. What are there any kind of specific testable predictions that you put on that in the next, let's say, ten years? An interesting thing to watch will be the crypto world, right? So I think like one way this could play out would be that you know a chain like Ethereum that reaches scale and is able to do you know is programmable and can do smart contracts, something like that could become like a global financial backbone, and so like that is something that could make nation state based financial networks irrelevant. So you still have like nation states like in terms of like police power and all that stuff. But like your financial system becomes essentially globalized because the rails are truly global. Right. And so that's like an example of an institution where sort of, you know, it doesn't the locus of power shifts away from from just the sort of monopoly by an actor in a single territory. Uh, I think you you mentioned this kind of briefly before, but what technological developments are you most excited about over the next let's say twenty to thirty years? Let's see. So I think biotech is really hot right now in terms of science, right? In terms of like the scientific breakthroughs. So I think one thing I'm interested in and watching is are those being translated into into therapies and treatments and devices that can monitor us? So I'm I'm watching like the longevity space like pretty closely. Really interested in the way that we do medicine in the future in terms of, you know, like so if you go to like the doctor today for like your annual checkup, right? They they actually like don't do that much to you. Like they like listen to your lungs and ask you a few questions and so on. And it's it's actually not that high quality of a, like a method of surveilling your health. And so like medical devices in terms of you can imagine like diagnostic grade like medical devices that you have with you all the time. Like, like think about like the Apple Watch as it will exist like twenty years from now. That could replace a lot of primary medicine. I think that's really exciting. You know, energy and transportation are kind of two areas that. I focused on a lot. I've spent a few years working on supersonics. And I think like over the next 20 years, I think we'll we'll definitely see a resurgence in high-speed flight and energy. Like we need to, you know, like I think everybody wants to do something about climate. And I think that's great. But I think a good side benefit of that is that people are rethinking energy. And it's possible we're going to come out of like this climate thing with new modes of clean energy that actually get us like more energy, right? Like much higher energy output than we have today. And we're going to do a lot of interesting things with that, you know, new materials, new processes and so on that could have a pretty big effect. How should we think about the policy lessons of supersonic? Because you and Sam Hammond wrote that paper, what, like four years ago? And now we've seen with Boom and a handful of other like supersonics, uh, companies are getting a lot of attention and are, and are kind of taking off. I don't actually know if there are any like, right, I think there were meaningful policy changes that resulted in part from your paper. But right, how should we think about levering? policy reforms to impact the development and deployment of new technologies. Yeah. So I think there has been sort of policy progress on supersonics lately. Yeah, we that paper came out in 2016. And then I started at Boom in, in 2017. And sort of by early 2018, like we had a good change from FAA on sort of the way they were approaching a takeoff and landing noise standard, which was one of the key issues that we identified. There has been a lot less progress on the area that Sam and I said was like most important to work on, which is the overland ban. So supersonics, like it's still like you cannot without special permission for like a test flight or something like that, like you cannot fly supersonic overland in a civil aircraft. And, you know, we're, we're like, well, just like replace the ban with a noise standard. It's not that hard. Would that be FAA or would that be a legislative decision? 
That would be FAA. FAA could do it. The challenge is like they're required to do something that's they're required by statute to do something that is appropriate for the kind of aircraft, right? So they they would what they would need to know is like what is a feasible noise level, you know, based on a relatively mature design. What is a feasible noise level that an aircraft could reach on on cruise in terms of sonic boom? And then the other thing that they need to know is that they they, they would need to do an environmental review of if they wanted to lift the ban, they would need to to do a study, right? And they don't have you know what they think is enough data to do that in terms of like the effect on the human response and so on. I mean, this has been studied to death, right? There's tons of research like back from the 1960s and 70s on this, but they're like, oh, people respond differently today than they did in the 60s and 70s to sonic boom. So in terms of that like there is a nasa program to basically build a low boom supersonic jet and like fly it and see how people respond and so that will probably happen in the next few years but to my mind like you just need to have a company that's going to build a low boom supersonic jet and they're going to say like we're going to build this no matter what and then fa is not going to block that right they would take the data from that aircraft and use it to sort of inform what the standard should be but you need like pretty ballsy investors to go for that and i think that's like the main obstacle so far you know we'll see there is a company called exosonic that is building a low boom jet so we'll see if they get far enough and mature enough to force the hand of of faa in terms of how to do this generally i think a lot about like like my approach is you know learn about the technology like learn about the like what it would be i put myself in the shoes of like what would it be like to have a company that is trying to do this and like what would the barriers be that i experience and like try to work on the policy changes that are actually blocking the entrepreneurs that are doing this thing. That's the kind of the mode of policy work that I would like to see more of. What percentage of the slowdown in TFP do you think is from regulation versus what might be described as a general cultural malaise versus just the fact that there aren't as many low hanging fruit as there used to be? Yeah, it's a great question. Definitely, like some of it has got to be like cultural and institutional, right? So if you look, and especially like this is obvious, like if you look at a bunch of other countries, Italy and Spain, like I think is actually like TFP is slightly going negative lately. You know, that's not attributable to people forgetting technologies or anything like that, right? It's It's got to be something cultural and institutional. And in, in them, like Brazil, I think it peaked in 1980, right? Like like the TFP. So like like today, you need 50% more real resources to get anything done, to get the same amount done in Brazil that you did in 1980. So I think like some of the decline has got to be cultural and institutional. I don't really attribute much to it, the lack of low-hanging fruit. I've you know wrote a blog post like six months ago arguing about like, here's all the things that we could do in the next 10 years. It's a pretty good list. And so I think there's like plenty of possibilities in terms of technological progress. I do think like a big obstacle is regulation and you know barriers to commercializing technologies, especially at scale. I would say a big chunk of it's institutional and sort of the rest is regulatory. So why have Americans gotten shatter over the last hundred years? So it's a great question. In the obscure corners of the internet that I like to read in, I've come across like a, a theory on it's basically due to like vegetable oils, which, you know, basically were like zero, you know, very low percentage of American diets 100 years ago and are a high percentage today. And in particular, vegetable oils like like soybean oil is like particular in particular has 50 percent one particular fatty acid called linoleic acid, which is an omega six fatty acid. And it's just highly unusual sort of in the evolutionary environment that we all evolved in to get that much linoleic or that much linoleic acid or that much omega-6. You're not going to be able to do that. So linoleic acid is something the body does not produce itself. You can only get it from what you eat. You do need like a, a tiny amount of it, like 1% of your calories or something like that would be plenty. People are getting things like 10% or more of their calories from linoleic acid. And that is just highly unusual and it bioaccumulates so it's one of the like one of the few things you can eat that like if you eat a lot of it you will become more of that thing to a considerable extent and so there's this one guy brad marshall who's blogs at fire in a bottle he has a really interesting background he's you know sort of like a trained has a degree in molecular biology or genetics from cornell and worked in that field for a while but he's also a pig farmer and a chef and a butcher. And so like he came to it through noticing the fat quality on the pigs that he was raising and butchering would vary based on the feed. And so that's like when he realized like, oh, this is bioaccumulating and it's kind of weird. So basically, I think like the fat that we consume has gotten like much, much more unsaturated. And that has metabolic effects. Like when you burn it in your mitochondria, like it behaves differently than it would if you're burning a saturated fat or a mono, mono unsaturated fat. And then that can like trigger 
because of the byproducts of that burning, like it can trigger different reactions in your body than it would if, if you were burning a, a saturated fat. That's like the spark. And then like the, all these other things that come downstream of that are probably the fire. And so basically it's, it's just changing our metabolisms by eating different stuff. So it just puts us in a one-tenth of a hibernation state all the time because our metabolism is low, then we get fat. It is linked to uh, torpor, right? Like what like some animals do to hibernate, right? Like hibernation is not sleep, right? It's like you're actually in a torpid state. Your body temperature goes down and you, you know, your metabolism is like in a conserving mode. And the way that animals get into that state is they eat a lot of linoleic acid. So like, you know, they'll eat acorns and stuff like that. They're high in linoleic acid. Like that is what triggers it in sort of basically all mammals that hibernate. It's something like that. This is a highly conserved genetic function. I think it predates the bird mammal split. It's like really a highly conserved evolutionary mechanism. So it makes sense. Like mechanisms, you know, like there's lots of mechanisms. So it's not proven. I think we need more research to like prove that this is what's going on. But that's like my current thinking on why it might be that we have an obesity epidemic. Uh, Have there been any kind of, I guess, studies where people restrict their intake of, I guess, seed and tuber oils for like a year and what the outcome is no there haven't been right so that's that's like i think something we should do is there's been studies like on mice and and so on and there's short-term studies on on people but you wouldn't expect the short-term studies to make much of a difference because the half-life of this stuff in your body is like you know on, on the scale of years what is nipa nipa is the national environmental policy act it was passed in 1969 took effect january 1970 And it basically says that before the federal government can make any decision or take any action that could or that would affect the human environment, they have to produce a detailed statement of what those effects are. That's in principle is like, before we decide we're going to do this, you got to say what the effects are. In the initial days after NEPA was passed, like, you know, the government would do, take some action, they would put forward a 10 page statement saying like, okay, this is what we think this is going to have these effects. You know, we're going to do this anyway, but it's like a 10 page paper and that was fine. And then through litigation and implementing regulations and so on, this sort of paperwork burden grew and grew and grew over the last several years. And now it's, if the federal government is going to take any action that could affect the human environment, it's like a hundreds of pages report that they got to do sometimes with thousands of pages of appendices and they've got to do public hearings, and they've got to have public comments on it, and and so on. Once the decision is made and finalized, then they can be sued, and they can go, go to court, and the decision can be stayed by a judge while that's pending. So it gives people cause of action to sue through the Administrative Procedure Act that this report didn't cover all the issues, let's say. And the remedy there is go back and do more research, right? And go back and like improve the report even further, right? It delays a lot of projects, and it enables people to to sue and stop things that they don't like. And the problem is that it gets even worse than that because it also implicates every other decision that doesn't affect the human environment. So let's say that, let's say I, you know, I'm an agency, I'm going to take an action that doesn't affect, you know, significantly affect the human environment. Well, I have to prove that. So like to prove that this 500 long page long, like five-year process thing, to prove that I don't have to go through that, I have to do like another report, which is a little bit shorter sometimes because you don't have to consider like all the alternative actions you could take. But it still very often takes two years or more to do that. And you also have to have public hearings and all that stuff around that. So the longer report is called an environmental impact statement. The shorter report is called an environmental assessment. So the government does a high number of these environmental assessments, right? So like tens of thousands a year of these two-year process types reports so basically what it means is like the government cannot make decisions quickly. Like it is like I think NEPA has basically lobotomized the federal government in terms of like its ability to like actually decide that or approve an action. And then this affects the private sector because it affects all permitting action. So if I want to build a tunnel that takes people between DC and Baltimore, as Elon Musk is trying to do, like you have to go through an environmental assessment process that takes years. And if you want to build a new nuclear power plant, like that's, guess what? This is like the biggest, you know, one of the biggest obstacles there, right? If you want to do a ge- geothermal well on federal land, like you might have to go through the this process like multiple times. 
So basically it means, you know, it's very hard to build in this country. And like, this is a big part of why, right? We, a lot of times we think about it being difficult to build in terms of like zoning rules for like housing, but at the sort of the infrastructure level, it's NEPA that's holding everything back. Even supersonic flight that we were talking about earlier, right? Like this is like the, the reason that FAA has to do an environmental review on like what it would be like to allow sonic booms, like it's NEPA, right? So it's like, it just touches almost everything in the economy and it makes the government like slow and stupid. Let's then, I guess, chat a little bit about social change, right? Like how do we then, like part of this is laws, part of this is a dumb law, but then also part of it is like people truly believe this kind of stuff and think that it is good. And maybe that's just because it has the word environmental in the name, but right, how do we actually go uh, and move from a, like people who are kind of serious about building in the next 20 to 30 years? How do we ensure that we actually are from a kind of regulatory as well as a cultural perspective, able to embrace these positive, constructive elements that allow us to build things. Yeah, so I think with like NEPA specifically, nothing is going to change until we get people who actually care about the environment to realize you're never going to get everybody, right? There's there's some people you're not going to get, and I'll talk about that for a second. You need to get people who care about the environment, genuinely care about the environment to see NEPA as an obstacle to their goals, right? And to see like, okay, this is like a big procedural thing. The government can decide to go through with something, even if it does harm the environment, right? So so in that sense, like NEPA doesn't actually protect the environment directly. Not in the same way that like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act like set standards for like what you can put in the air and the water. NEPA doesn't do that. And we're going to need a lot of new infrastructure, green infrastructure, high-speed rail, like all this stuff to like improve the local environment in terms of air pollution and water cleanliness and all that stuff. Like you need new infrastructure to do that. And then also to fight climate change, like you need to build a whole lot of things. And we're not going to be able to do that effectively if NEPA doesn't change or, or get replaced. And so the big problem that you have is that NEPA gives this legal cause of action to environmental lawyers. There's a whole like class of existing environmental groups. So first kill the lawyers? <laughs> Basically. So like this is their bread and butter, right? So there are like a lot of big nonprofit environmental organizations. Like this is what they do is that they use NEPA as a way to get a cause of action to like stop things, bad things from happening that they don't want to happen. Right. And so like that's their business model. If they didn't have NEPA, like they wouldn't be able to like raise the money. I would be like super happy if like environmental groups would lobby for strict environmental standards or something like that. But that's actually not their main thing that they do. They sue to stop projects from going forward. And like that's their business model. And like you're never going to get them to say like, yeah, we should get rid of NEPA because it's holding back progress because it eviscerates their business model. Right. And so you need to get genuinely left of center environmental people who realize like this is not a good system to me like it's like winning over those people that's how we would ever be able to like get a lasting change in the way we do environmental review in this country so like trump put forward a regulatory change right in the sort of in in the nepa implementing regulations he got it through in 2020 and now biden's probably going to undo it all at least the, some of the key aspects and it's a really unhelpful dynamic in the past you know both republican and democratic administrations have tried to like rein in this permitting problem. But I think that Trump, because Trump made it sort of like a make America great again type program, I think that Biden now is feels like he's got to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, the way you're describing it, I'm just not, I guess, optimistic. I agree. Like, all right, let's get the greens on the side of common sense. But then you see the kind of dominant energy is like not just ban nuclear power, but shut down existing nuclear power. Shut plants. down existing, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it's like literally, I mean, Germany like shuts down existing plants and then they increase their coal production. They're shutting down, what is it, Diablo Canyon in California that produces like, what, 40% of the non-carbon polluting energy. And so, right, let's convince this group, but kind of by all appearances, right, they celebrate Greta Thornburg, who like literally wants to end industrial civilization. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, it's interesting that like, there is a small but hopefully growing eco-modernist movement right people who say like yes the environment's critical but we also need to grow and we also need to like grow so that we can preserve the environment and grow so that we can protect the environment but and, and also growth is good i think it's like the sort of the future of environmentalism is going to be eco-modernism versus eco-primitivism right the people who think we should all like be living in straw huts in developing countries right 
and sort of like reduce our standard of, of living to that level. And probably a lot of us are going to starve and so on. Like they would think that it would be good. Well, they're not the ones who are going to starve. Well, yeah, exactly. But they would, right? Like if they actually got their way, like a lot, of, a lot of them probably would. I think like that's implicitly like the next 20 years of environmental politics is eco-modernism versus eco-primitivism. If that proceeds, you know, especially if it can become more of a high profile fight, right? Like in, in terms for the soul of the movement, like I think you're going to see a lot of sensible moderate left people being like oh yeah like eco-modernism that's what we want we want like we want growth and and we want environmental protection as well i really hope you're right but just like looking at it right this fight has been going on for the past 30 years too right you have people like joran lomberg who at least like i don't know how true his narrative is but like the way he tells it he was like a lefty student who was doing statistics and heard somebody come on the radio and basically say that most of the environmental statistics are wrong and he was like no, they're, they're right, blah, blah. And he went, like, looked it up, and then he found out that the student was right and kind of converted his beliefs because of that. All right, so he tells the, the, the kind of experience of conversion through exposure to data, but he's just pegged as a righty now. Yeah, he hasn't changed his fundamental politics at all, right? Like, he's still very left to center. Yeah. My kind of worry is that basically as soon as there's been a handful of people who've been able to go, like, right kind of eco-modernist without being pegged as righties, Rand is, is one who has, like, enough lefty credentials, but by and large, I think most people, if they start engaging in these kind of public discussions, they're just going to be pegged as a righty and then they're going to be ignored. It's interesting also, like the left wants infrastructure, right? And it's like, okay, you want infrastructure. If you want to build, we're going to do it. And I think also what was really interesting is in 2009, right, the Obama stimulus, the American, I forget what it's called, something Recovery Act, ARRA, they had to do tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of NEPA reviews to like implement all that, to spend the money. Like none of it got spent during the recession or like very, you know, a small amount of it got spent during the recession. It was all like getting spent in actually like in terms of like jobs and stuff in like 2011, once the the formal recession was over. If you care about things like being able to respond quickly to an economic crisis, you need to reform some of this. And I think in general, like if you think about like the intelligence of an organization as the ability to like make quick and high quality decisions, right? Like NEPA lobotomizes the federal government. It destroys the ability of the organization that the, the left is supposed to cherish, right? The state, right? Uh, like it destroys the ability of, you know, in, agencies to make quick decisions. That's not good. If you are a generally like a pro-government person, you should want the state to have high state capacity, right? You can't have that. Uh, you can't have that and NEPA, right? Like you can have, you can have one or the other. I fully like agree with your arguments. I'm just kind of thinking about it from the kind of like cultural slash political perspective of will these be persuasive? Where I mean, we're we're seeing this now in kind of COVID, right? There are some corners of the internet that are basically saying, "Look, there's a massive failure of public health institutions," and then you like drive through Bethesda and people have like Fauci yard signs, and it's like you're starting to see the penetration in in some circles, right? I kind of joke that the most important intellectual trend today is the GMU to former Vox pipeline where you have like Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias have been like GMU pills to a certain extent and are kind of realizing this and they've got enough lefty credentials that they're not getting exercised or kicked out of the quote unquote movement. But right, it takes, yeah, it, it does, I don't know, right? Like figuring out how to thread that needle and get that consensus that allows for those reforms, I think is, is really critical. Yeah, totally. I mean, I agree with you. It's going to be a hard slog to improve NEPA or to, you know, reform it in a way that lets a lot of progress happen. But it'll be a fun fight either way. So you want to start a airship company. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I don't know if it's me starting it, but I think that somebody should you want to convince somebody else to start it. So tell the business model. Of- I would be happy to be, even be involved, right? Assume, assume the future co-founder is listening to this podcast. What's the pitch? Yeah. So the pitch is that airships get more efficient, the bigger they get, right? So there's a square cube law. The lift of an airship is proportional to its volume and the drag of the airship is proportional to its cross-sectional area. So the bigger the airship gets, the better the L over D ratio gets. And then there's other scaling factors as well. So if you are talking about a rigid body airship, which I think you should, like the weight of it doesn't scale as fast as the volume either. So what this amounts to is what we should use. We could use airships for cargo to take like, 500 tons of containers at a time, uh, you know, thousands of miles, and you could do it like a lot more cheaply, like sort of in terms of like per ton, you could do it a lot more cheap or per ton mile, you could do it a lot more cheaply than like a 747 freighter, right? So what it does is, you know, so you can think about like the existing cargo market today. How would it compare to rail? Because that seems to be the kind of primary competition. 
I think the where you would want to do this is transoceanic. So would that would it be competing? It would be competing on speed then. Right now, the sort of transoceanic market, you either your choice is pay like a really high rate per ton mile to take it on a plane, or a, a very absurdly low rate to put it on a ship. And you know, like if you put it on a ship, like it's it takes like weeks or months to get to your final destination because because the ship stops at every port along the way. And if you did point to point on an airship, you could do it in like, so it's it, basically it's like a five to 10 X reduction in cost over uh, airplane freight and a five to 10 X speed up over ocean freight. So it's like a pretty nice middle market. I think it would be like ideal for things like uh, you know, sort of like middle value to weight ratio. So things like machinery, automobiles, parts and equipment for factories and so on. That's probably like the market you want to put it. If it's if it's higher value to weight ratio, you probably want to put it on a plane. If it's lower value to weight ratio, you'd want to put it on a ship. But basically, if you target that kind of market and let's, let's say you get like 5% of today's ocean container volume and you put it on there, that's a fleet of like 4,000 airships and couple hundred billion dollars in revenue a year, like maybe a hundred hundred billion dollars in profit a year, right? Operating profit. So it's like a big market if people do it. Now the problem is you can't start this off with like a subscale airship, right? Like if you started off with like I'm gonna I'm gonna do like I'm not gonna do a five hundred ton payload airship. I'm gonna do like a ten ton payload airship. Well like your economics get way worse because of that scaling factor that I was talking about earlier, right? Like you want because it's more efficient, the bigger it is, you want to start with a really big one. There is no path to to sort of like gradually scaling up you need to start big so that's like the challenge with it i think it'd be a really good business today more than ever like the time is right because we have the autonomy systems to do this sort of either remotely piloted or with some sort of ai on board that pilots a thing and that saves you from crew costs from having to put bunks on board for like rotating crews like labs heads etc or galleys right you don't need any of that like you don't need food on board you don't need to support the crew uh, on board at all right and you can just just do it completely autonomously so i think like now is the time to do it it's a good moment yeah i guess kind of thing that i think about when you, you chat about that is africa because africa has very poor return infrastructure and then two is some of times the climate right is so poor that the maintenance costs are substantially higher than in more temperate climates as well as you have a much more limited amount of work time availability given that it's very difficult to be productive on large infrastructure projects when you're getting several inches of rain a day, which might happen for several months a year. And so because of that, it's possible to imagine airships not even competing with because the rail infrastructure in Africa is quite poor, but kind of leapfrogging and allowing for landlocked countries to have more access to greater markets without the, the kind of rail or even road infrastructure that would otherwise be perhaps more costly. Yeah, I think that's right. So Africa is interesting because they actually have very few deep water ports. I think it's like eight or nine for the whole continent in terms of like truly able to receive like the biggest cargo ships. And then also, as you said, like the rail infrastructure is really bad because they actually haven't standardized their rail gauge. So they actually have to change rail gauge several times. And every time you you do that, you have to unload the cargo from one train and like they don't actually unload it from one train to and put it on another. Like they unload it and like take it off the ground and set it on the ground. And then it sits there for a couple of weeks and you like have to pay a bribe to like get it back on to the other train. And so like it's an opportunity for some sort of tax to be extracted. Like a decade ago, I was I was in Rwanda for a while, and I heard like basically like to get a container to the port at Dar es Salaam from anywhere in the world is like thirty bucks, right? To get it like the seven hundred miles from there to Kigali is like you know or like order a couple orders of magnitude higher, right? Like thousand bucks or something like that to, to get a container there to be able to just go straight, you know, skip over that, right, and just go straight inland, right? There's so many landlocked countries, and just be able to like serve them directly, I think it would be a, a huge advantage. Uh, I mean, it's sort of like there, there's been the talk of like using drones to deliver like medicine and goods to like remote villages and regions. This is kind of that, but on a yeah much much grander scale. Yeah, yeah, like 500 tons at a time, right? Yeah, I don't think it, I, I went through your old writings, and I, I don't think I saw that much about like AI. So, right in the last year or so, we've had several substantive advances, or maybe GPT three was two years ago. I don't remember. Um, right, GPT three, as well as we've seen, I think it was DeepMind that did uh, protein folding. Uh, kind of what can we expect the impact of AI to be over the, the next decade? And how does that kind of work with all of the, the other, I guess, I don't know, technological innovation predictions? Because the really optimistic AI people are like, this is bigger than electricity and everything else. And I don't have that bit of a baseline for it. I'm like, that might be true, but like, I, I don't really know. 
so the way I like had approached this like before DeepMind, before AlphaFold, was there's been a lot of excitement about AI in the past, like going back decades. There's been AI, but then there's like always been like this disillusionment, this AI winter. And so I was like, okay, there's going to be an AI winter still. Like this is still hype and stuff. And part of what I would have you know said like a year ago to justify this, I, was, I would have said like, look, if you think about GPT three, it's basically a toy, right? It's not it's not superhuman performance, right? If you think about something like uh, Alpha Go or Alpha Zero or, or you know uh, that sort of the chess engine that that DeepMind did, like okay, it is superhuman performance, but it's basically a toy. Everything so far that you know before protein folding was either subhuman performance still or working on a problem that didn't matter right so like chess like okay like like okay like chess it's cool but it's not going to increase dfp right alpha fold is like the first example of like we are actually able to do something that we could not otherwise do with alpha fold and it matters right so to me like that's a shift that is worth noting and uh, i think the question is just how, how quickly can we come up with with more of these i think that's like how it will play out it will be like relatively discrete domains where we kind of have like alpha fold like breakthroughs i'm not expecting like a um, general intelligence that's like able to like replace skilled labor or anything like or, or, or skilled general purpose intelligence like and you know like ability to sort of like creatively problem solve right i'm not i don't think it's it's like gonna take all the jobs it will take jobs in particular like narrow domains why should we bring back mammoths so it would actually be this is like another eco-modernism thing right like it would be great for the climate your first answer should be they're awesome. <laughs> they are awesome. They are awesome. I think another thing is like, uh, there's like a justice argument, right? Like we killed them. Right? <laughs> they were on the planet for thousands of years and, you know, maybe uh, hundreds of thousands of years and or millions of years. And we, we humans showed up and we hunted them to extinction pretty fast. Basically, like sort of if you think about like these ecosystems like Siberia, the way it used to be was it was grassland and it would snow, of course, but the fauna would like trample the snow basically make it not as insulating on the ground and they would uproot a lot of the trees that started to grow because actually elephants and you know mammoths are kind of elephant right the elephants really enjoy pulling up trees uh, apparently like, they do it for fun the mammoths basically kept the ecosystem grassland like they kept it grassland right and, and so that enabled the cold air that was circulating above the ground to penetrate you know the coldness of it to penetrate the permafrost and keep it frozen and now with trees which are darker and like absorb more sunlight with thicker layers of snow which are insulating in the winters you know basically the permafrost is not so perma anymore it is it is melting to some extent is is the temperature is getting warmer and so basically by hunting the mammoths to extinction we've created this situation where the the permafrost is melting and it's you know there's potential for it to release a lot of greenhouse gases especially methane which is more potent than co2 as it melts, like it's going to make climate change potentially like accelerate. And so the argument is like bring back herding, large herding animals uh, or, or grazing animals, herds of ideally mammoths, but maybe like other large grazing animals as well that trample things and eat grasses and are forage, going to be foraging for grasses and disrupting the snow cover. We should bring back the bison. I think absolutely. Like bring back bison and mammoths and you would have these sort of like grass fly over them with airships <laughs> absolutely D- sky dark with airships but also like bring back mammoths i think it's a good future okay so let's i guess finish up on charter cities right cci mostly focus on pretty much all focus on charter cities in emerging markets figuring out how to kind of do catch-up growth but there's also these ideas about uh, using charter cities to mostly to like kind of accelerate technological innovation allow for a better more conducive regulatory environment than might be in the us or in europe or wherever so if you are building a charter city to accelerate technological innovation, what would kind of be the key industries that would you target and how would you create regulatory regimes that would allow for them to be more innovative than, let's say, the U.S.? So I think in terms of infrastructure, particularly like with the NEPA discussion we've had, right? Like, what if you made it like super easy to build things, right? Like housing also, but get housing super cheap, make it dense so that it's super cheap. If you cut out the sort of the, all the things that we do, to make infrastructure expensive, all the like we have Buy American provisions, we have union labor rules, we have all these redundant employees doing a bunch of things, and we have all this environmental review, which means you have to go through years of review before you can even put a shovel in the ground and think about the ROI that that does for the capital markets. The way it affects reduces the ROI, right? Because it takes longer. I think it would be great to just have a city that is optimized for building or where the rules are designed up front with like, how can we make it easy to build like 
really high quality infrastructure that's going to improve the lives of everybody and all the all the residents. What about biotech? That's kind of where the innovation I'm probably most excited about like biotech and I mean AI as well. But in terms of biotech, that's one of the areas that typically has some of the strongest arguments about like regulatory burdens slowing down innovation. It's really challenging because you need the kind of agglomeration combined with the regulatory environment. And in reality, you could go to a lot of emerging markets. Many emerging markets don't have particularly strong biotech regulatory states. People end up going there end up just being like snake oil salesmen. So how do you actually create this agglomeration with a possibility of kind of pushing the frontier? The way I would think about starting is doing right to try, which is kind of unobjectionable and would allow for some innovation on the margin, start to get agglomeration and then kind of branch out from there. You could also do, for example, medical tourism. And then once you have the base medical tourism set up, even if it's not innovative at all, right, then you have at least some degree of infrastructure established that you can start allowing for experimentation with some new therapies, new drugs, new medical devices. The way I kind of think about it is you have to target series B uh, plus companies because right, they're the only companies that are risk-loving enough to do it and have enough capital to open a second lab or something in a new location where Big Pharma is just way too risk-averse that they're not going to bother with it. Yeah, so I think like medical tourism is like a really good application, particularly if we're talking about stuff like longevity. I think like the market for sort of the, like off-label or not fully approved longevity treatments as those get developed in the next couple of years, you know, I think that being the market where you know somebody can go and spend a few days in your charter city and receive some of these treatments and like that they couldn't get in the US. I think that's like a great application. And then like, you know, they stay for a few days and, and maybe they love it and then maybe they move, right? Like, and, and they come, come. So it's actually like a potentially good recruitment. You want to recruit wealthy residents, right? To be like sort of like tent poles of the, of the economy there. That's potentially very useful. In terms of like competing like if you're trying to like compete globally on a, like drug approvals it's like really hard because like your market just isn't big enough it has to be very high value it's like the airship it has to be like high value of one shot it can't be anything that's chronic because you already right, ask me people fly in take it fly back maybe once a year once every five years but it can't be really any more frequent than that right exactly so so i think it's really tough but i think yeah just starting with uh the medical tourism and especially like longevity tourism could be really good Cool. All right. Well, great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's been super fun. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.